the beginning of love, the excitement of a journey, with no sign from above, a blank canvas and new screenplay. You must know what to do. You're talking with a smile, bowing to the sunshine. The beginning of time. Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover. In the previous episode, we talked about Sylvia Plath's extraordinary poem, The Rabbit Catcher, and sketched the domestic drama that prompted the excursion that in turn gave rise to her poem. Now we're moving on to the poem written by her husband, Ted Hughes. But before we leave Plath, let's notice that in her poem, she never uses the word you. As I said in the previous episode, when she writes that poem, her wound is very fresh. But by the time she reaches the clifftop, Hughes has already become a marginal figure. The marital, sexual, artistic partnership that she had built with him has collapsed and she races ahead of him, ripping up the rabbit traps and flinging them into the trees. She, it seems to me, is leaving her illusions, Hughes included behind. She's alone heading towards the whiteness of death. She will care for her two young children as long as she can. She will leave a brilliant testimony to her final months. But in terms of her life arc, Hughes is already in the rear vision mirror. In her poem, as I say, she uses the word we once, she uses the word us once, but she never uses the word you. By contrast, in his poem, Hughes uses the word you or your 31 times, 31. His poem, which was written some years after the events that gave rise to Plath's anger, and which was published in the 1998 collection, Birthday Letters, is focused on trying to understand this you. His poem is a response to her poem. It's a commentary on her poem, in some sense a self-justification and an attempt to put the fury of that day into a wider context. Let's listen to it. It was May. How had it started? What had bared our edges? What quirky twist of the moon's blade had set us so early in the day bleeding each other? What had I done? I had somehow misunderstood. Inaccessible in your dibic fury, babies hurled into the car you drove. 
We surely had been intending a day's outing somewhere on the coast, an exploration. So you started driving. What I remember is thinking, she'll do something crazy. And I ripped the door open and jumped in beside you. So we drove west. West. Cornish lanes, I remember, a simmering truce as you stared with iron in your face into some remote thunderscape of some unworldly war. I simply trod accompaniment, carried babies, waited for you to come back to nature. We tried to find the coast. You raged against our English private greed of fencing off all coastal approaches, hiding the sea from roads from all inland. You despised England's grubby edges when you got there. That day belonged to the Furies. I searched the map to penetrate the farms and private kingdoms. Finally, a gateway. It was a fresh day, full May. Somewhere I'd bought food. We crossed a field and came to the open blue push of sea wind. A gorse cliff, brambly, oak-packed coombs. We found an eerie hollow just under the cliff top. It seemed perfect to me. Feeding babies, your Germanic scowl, edged like a helmet, would not translate itself. I sat baffled. I was a fly outside on the window pane of my own domestic drama. You refused to lie there, being indolent. You hated it. That flat, drafty plate was not an ocean. You had to be away, and you went. And I trailed after, like a dog, along the cliff-top field edge, over a wind-matted oak wood, and I found a snare. Copper wire gleam, brown cord, human contrivance sitting new set. Without a word, you tore it up and threw it into the trees. I was aghast. Faithful to my country gods, I saw the sanctity of a trapline discredited. You saw blunt fingers, blood in the cuticles clamped round a blue mug. I saw country poverty raising a penny filling a Sunday stew pot. You saw baby-eyed, strangled innocence. I saw sacred ancient custom. You saw snare after snare and went ahead, riving them from their roots and flinging them down the wood. I saw you ripping up precarious, precious saplings of my heritage. Hard-won concessions from the hangings and the transportations to live off the land. You cried, murderers! You were weeping with a rage that cared nothing for rabbits. You were locked into some chamber, gasping for oxygen, where I could not find you or really hear you, let alone understand you. In those snares, you'd caught something. 
Had you caught something in me? Nocturnal and unknown to me? Or was it your doomed self? Your tortured, crying, suffocating self? Whichever. Those terrible, hypersensitive fingers of your verse closed round it and felt it alive. The poems, like smoking entrails, came soft into your hands. Now, if we think of Hughes's poem in relation to what a scriptwriter would call the inciting incident that spurred the action, i.e. the kiss in the kitchen which sundered his relationship with Plath, this first stanza seems, to say the least, disingenuous. Come on, man. When your wife bowled into the kitchen... She found you in a hot clinch with another woman, right there among the pots and pans, with the butter dish that, let's say, Aunt Meredith offered you guys as a wedding present sitting on the shelf behind you. What do you mean you don't know what had bared her edges? You claim that you're baffled? Oh, come on, come on, come clean. But I think we must bear in mind that Hughes was writing this poem several years, perhaps many years after the events, when the event that had triggered Plath's fury had dissolved in his understanding and his sense of the whole shape and history of their relationship. Even before that kiss, Hughes knew that the marriage was no longer sustainable In December 1962, just two months before Sylvia's suicide, he wrote a letter to his brother in which he said, I quote, The one factor that nobody but quite close friends can comprehend is Sylvia's particular death ray quality. In many of the most important ways, she's the most gifted and capable an admirable woman I've ever met, but finally impossible for me to live married to. At the beginning of love, the excitement of a journey, with no sign from above, a blank canvas and new screenplay. You must know what to do You're talking with a smile In his rabbit catcher, Hughes does not recall his infidelity. He was a private person and always very averse to personal revelations. No doubt it is more comfortable for his ego to situate their quarrel in a wider context, to talk about a clash of values, a clash of traditions, to focus on what he sees as the incomprehensible nature of his wife's fury, a fury which he suggests is almost malevolent because 
He uses the Hebrew word dybbuk, D-Y-B-B-U-K, in relation to this fury. This is the death ray quality that he sees in her. But perhaps his approach is ultimately more truthful and more insightful. The second to last stanza of his poem is all about irreconcilable viewpoints. When they stumble on the rabbit traps, Plath rips them up, shouting, murderers! She sees brutishness. She imagines innocence being strangled. By contrast, Hugh sees people who live off the land according to ancient rural custom. People whose woodcraft, whose knowledge of trapping saved them from hunger and whose knowledge of woodcraft and trapping might in England in the 1830s have saved them from being transported to a penal colony in Australia because they were not obliged to steal. In a sense, Hughes's poem, like so many of the poems in his collection, Birthday Letters, is an elegy, but it is also a complaint. Your fury, he says, was incandescent, incomprehensible. You had no understanding of the way England works. You had no sympathy for it. You wouldn't speak to me. I couldn't reach you. What could I do except trail after you? As he tells the story, Sylvia was about to drive off in a fury. He jumped into the car. He sat in the passenger seat as she gripped the wheel and scowled at the road ahead. He bought food when she stopped for petrol. He carried the kids. He studied the map when they couldn't find a way to get to the coast. He spotted the way in. She led. He followed, trying to be of assistance. And when they find a sunny, warm hollow on top of the cliff, for him it is perfect. He wants to sink into this warm, sunny hollow and enjoy the warmth of the sun on his skin. But Sylvia, seeing this casual forgetfulness, this insouciance, storms off. And Hughes writes, And I trailed after like a dog along the cliff-top field edge over a wind-matted oak wood. What Hughes's poem is building up to is its final stanza, which runs, In those snares you'd caught something. Had you caught something in me? Nocturnal and unknown to me? Or was it your doomed self? Your tortured, crying, suffocating self? Whichever, those terrible, hypersensitive fingers of your verse closed round it and felt it alive. The poems, like smoking entrails, came soft into your hands. 
For Hughes, Plath is herself a hunter. Her pursuit of poems is as single-minded, as concentrated, as cruel, as relentless as the man laying traps for rabbits. With her hypersensitive perceptiveness, she captures states of mind and feeling and pins them to the page. Her fury is matched by the heat of the entrails of the trapped animal. And it may be implied, who could possibly live with that? Many commentators have sensed Hughes saying that by virtue of his infidelity, he has helped Plath release her true poetic voice. Well, it seems clear that their rupture did indeed generate in Plath a massive, furious energy. And hats off to her, she had the strength and discipline to turn that energy to account. Alone in that farmhouse in Devon with the two children as the autumn of 1962 drew in, in the early hours of the morning, Before the children woke, Plath wrote a series of unforgettable poems. As I said in the previous episode, Hughes' poem, predicated on what a divorce judge might call irreconcilable differences, for me cannot match the purity, the single-minded intensity of Plath's poem. It's not just that. For me... Plath's poem has a mystery and a force that go beyond words. Hughes's poem, it seems to me, is less exalted, it's more defensive, it's more prosaic. It trails after hers, as he says, like a dog. But when I say like a dog, I don't say that in a pejorative way as a criticism, because dogs are loyal. And what I think cannot be disputed is that however difficult their relationship, however brutal their breakup, Hughes was and remained Plath's number one fan, a huge admirer of her artistry. He remained an advocate and defender of her art all his life. Ultimately, as I see it, Hughes was as caught in the wires and pegs of their relationship as she was. His collection, Birthday Letters, is a series of 88 poems written to her and for her. It was published just a few months before his death at the age of 68, 35 years after these events. So he continued thinking of her, re-examining their relationship, reminiscing, writing to her until his very last day. And as for Plath, she was a comet, and her poem, The Rabbit Catcher, is a truly great poem. <laughs> 